0: House is in recess this week and will return on Tuesday, September 25th. The Senate will return on Monday, work Monday and part of Tuesday, take Tuesday evening and Wednesday off for Yom Kippur, and then return for Thursday and Friday, according to the Senate's official schedule. Last week on the House floor, the House came back to work on Wednesday afternoon and passed three bills under suspension of the rules. On Thursday, the House passed the rule that would govern debate on H.R. 3798, the Save American Workers Act of 2017, and the conference report to accompany H.R. 5895, making appropriations for energy and water development, legislative branch spending, military construction, and veterans affairs, and other related agencies for the FY 2019 fiscal year. Then the House passed a bill under suspension, and then the House agreed to the conference report accompanying H.R. 595. 5895 the first minibus spending bill it passed on a bipartisan vote of 377 to 20. it appropriates 147 billion dollars about 12 percent of overall projected discretionary spending for 2019. and then they were done so this week on the house floor no action they're in recess last week on the senate floor the senate came back to work on wednesday afternoon and voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of charles redig to be commissioner of the internal revenue service Later that afternoon, the Senate voted by 64 to 33 to confirm Reddig to that position. Then the Senate voted to agree to the conference report accompanying H.R. 5895, the first minibus spending bill. The vote to agree to the conference report was 92 to 5, with three senators not voting. The five who opposed the conference report were Jeff Flake of Arizona, Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, Ed Markey of Massachusetts, Rand Paul of Kentucky, and Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. The three who did not vote were Richard Burr of North Carolina, Johnny Isaacson of Georgia, and Bill Nelson of Florida. And then they were done. This week on the Senate floor, the Senate will return to work Monday. Following any leader remarks, the Senate will proceed to consideration of H.R. 6, the opioids bill, with the debate time on H.R. 6 and S. 2554, the Patient Right to Know Drug Prices Act, running concurrently. At 5.30 p.m. tomorrow, the Senate will proceed to three roll call votes on the following. Adoption of an amendment by Mike Lee to S-2554, passage of S-2554 as amended if needed, and passage of H.R. 6, the opioids bill, as amended. We also expect the Senate to vote this week on the second minibus spending bill, the one combining the spending bill for the Department of Defense with the spending bill for the Departments of Labor, Health and Human Services, and Education and Related Agencies. We'll talk more about that in a moment. On the FBI-DOJ front, last Monday, Congressman Mark Meadows sent a letter to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein saying, quote, A review of the new documents raises grave concerns regarding an apparent systemic culture of media leaking by high-ranking officials at the FBI and DOJ related to ongoing investigations. End quote. He was referring to newly released text messages and documents obtained by the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee that revealed that members of the FBI and DOJ led a coordinated effort to leak unverified information to the press regarding alleged collusion with Russia to damage the Trump administration, according to investigative reporter Sarah Carter. You can read more about it in the suggested reading. I would also commend to your attention a piece in The Hill by John Solomon, who writes in part, quote, To date, Lisa Page's infamy has been driven mostly by the anti-Donald Trump text messages she exchanged with fellow FBI agent Peter Strzok, as the two engaged in an affair while investigating the president for alleged election collusion with Russia. Yet, when history judges the former FBI lawyer years from now, her most consequential pronouncement may not have been typed on her bureau-issued Samsung smartphone to her colleague and lover. Rather, it might be eight simple words she uttered behind closed doors during a congressional interview a few weeks ago. Quote, It's a reflection of us still not knowing... Page told Republican Representative John Ratcliffe of Texas when questioned about texts she and Strzok exchanged in May 2017 as Robert Mueller was being named a special prosecutor to take over the Russia investigation. With that statement, Page acknowledged a momentous fact. After nine months of using some of the most awesome surveillance powers afforded to U.S. intelligence, the FBI still had not made a case connecting Trump or his campaign to Russia's election meddling. Page opined further, acknowledging, quote, it still existed in the scope of possibility that there would be literally nothing, unquote, to connect Trump and Russia, no matter what Mueller or the FBI did. Quote, as far as May of 2017, we still couldn't answer the question, end quote, she said at another point. I reached out to Page's lawyer, Amy Jeffress, on Friday. She declined to answer questions about her client's cooperation with Congress. It might take a few seconds for the enormity of Page's statements to sink in. After all, she isn't just any FBI lawyer. She was a lead on the Russia case when it started in summer 2016, and she helped it transition to Mueller through summer 2017. For those who might cast doubt on the word of a single FBI lawyer, there's more. Shortly after he was fired, ex-FBI Director James Comey told the Senate there was not yet evidence to justify investigating Trump for colluding with Russia. Quote, when I left, we did not have an investigation focused on President Trump, Comey testified. And Strzok, the counterintelligence boss and leader of the Russia probe, texted Page in May 2017 that he was reluctant to join Mueller's probe and leave his senior FBI post because he feared, quote, there's no big there, there, unquote. The Department of Justice Inspector General asked Strzok shortly before he was fired from the FBI what he meant by that text. And he offered a most insightful answer. Strzok said he wasn't certain there was a, quote, broad, coordinated effort, unquote, to hijack the election. And that the evidence of Trump campaign aides talking about getting Hillary Clinton dirt from Russians might have been just a, quote, bunch of opportunists, unquote, talking to heighten their importance. Strzok added that while he raised the idea of impeachment in some of his texts to Page, quote, I am, again, was not, am not convinced or certain that it will, unquote, he told the IG. So, by the words of Comey, Strzok, and Page, we now know that the Trump Justice Department, through Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, unleashed the Mueller special prosecutor probe before the FBI could validate a connection between Trump and Russia, which raises the question, if there was no concrete evidence of collusion, why did we need a special prosecutor? On the Supreme Court front, on Monday of last week, we learned that two groups in Maine, Mainers for Accountable Leadership and Maine People's Alliance, have threatened Senator Susan Collins over her upcoming vote on the confirmation of Judge Brett Kavanaugh. The groups have created a crowdsourced fundraising campaign aimed at raising $1.3 million in pledges for her 2020 re-election campaign. If she votes the way they want her to, they will refund the pledges. If she votes against the way they want her to, they will give the money to her opponent, who has yet to be determined. Federal law declares it a violation whenever a party, quote, directly or indirectly gives, offers or promises anything of value to any public official for or because of any official act performed or to be performed by such public official. Unquote. Look at it this way. <clears throat> if a group of thugs walked into Senator Collins' office with a bag full of money and told her to her face that if she voted a certain way they were going to give her the money. We would all understand that as an act of bribery, wouldn't we? So why would it not be bribery if they told her that if she voted a certain way, they would give the bag of money to her opponent? Excuse me. As of Wednesday afternoon, 40,897 prospective donors had pledged $1,137,595 for the campaign. Not surprisingly, Senator Collins is having none of it. Quote, I've had three attorneys tell me they think it's a clear violation of the federal law on bribery, she told the Wall Street Journal. Actually, two told me that. One told me it's extortion, end quote. Continued the senator, quote, it's offensive. It's of questionable legality. And it is extraordinary to me that people would want to participate in trying to essentially buy a senator's vote, end quote. While that drama continues to play out, on Thursday, Senate Democrats on the Judiciary Committee revealed that they had referred to the FBI for investigation a complaint against Judge Kavanaugh. The the complaint regarded sexual misconduct, and it dated back to his high school days, coming from an anonymous female who first approached Democratic Congresswoman Anna Eshoo, her congresswoman, back in July. The letter was also sent to Senator Dianne Feinstein, the ranking Democrat, on the Judiciary Committee. Ronan Farrow and Jane Meyer published a piece in The New Yorker about this letter on Friday. According to the letter, the woman alleged that during an encounter at a party in the early 1980s, quote, Kavanaugh held her down and that he attempted to force himself on her. She claimed in the letter that Kavanaugh and a classmate of his, both of whom had been drinking, turned up music that was playing in the room to conceal the sound of her protests and that Kavanaugh covered her mouth with his hand. She was able to free herself, end quote, wrote, Farrow and Meyer. Kavanaugh responded with a categorical denial, quote, I categorically and unequivocally deny this allegation. I did not do this back in high school or at any time, end quote. Kavanaugh's classmate, who is alleged to have taken part in the misconduct, is Mark Judge. He spoke to a reporter for the Weekly Standard on Friday and strongly denied that such an event had ever occurred, quote, it's just absolutely nuts. I never saw Brett act that way, unquote he said. Meanwhile, Kavanaugh and a network of his clerks and former law clerks went to work contacting more than five dozen women who have known Kavanaugh since high school. Within 24 hours, they had a letter signed by 65 women defending Kavanaugh. Said the letter, quote, Through the more than 35 years we have known him, Brett has stood out for his friendship, character, and integrity. In particular, he has always treated women with decency and respect. That was true when he was in high school, and it has remained true to this day, unquote. As of Sunday morning, it appeared that Kavanaugh was on track for a confirmation vote in the Judiciary Committee on Thursday of this week, with a floor vote to confirm him the following week. But that calculation may have changed because the anonymous female decided on Sunday to stop being anonymous. She spoke on the record to the Washington Post. Her name is Christine Blasey Ford, and in the Washington Post piece based on the interview, entitled California Professor, Writer of Confidential Brett Kavanaugh Letter, Speaks Out About Her Allegation of Sexual Assault, she tells the story in some detail. The post begins by laying out the circumstances of her decision to come forward. Quote, she contacted the post through a tip line in early July when it had become clear that Kavanaugh was on the short list of possible nominees to replace retiring Justice Anthony M. Kennedy. But before Trump announced his name publicly, a registered Democrat who has made small contributions to political organizations, she contacted her congresswoman, Democrat Anna G. Eshoo, around this same time. In late July, she sent a letter via Eshoo's office to Senator Dianne Feinstein of California, the ranking Democrat on the Judiciary Committee. In the letter, which was read to the Post, Ford described the incident and said she expected her story to be kept confidential. She signed the letter as Christine Blasey, the name she uses professionally. Though Ford had contacted the Post, For weeks, she declined to speak on the record, as she grappled with concerns about what going public would mean for her and her family, and what she said was her duty as a citizen to tell the story. She engaged Deborah Katz, a Washington lawyer known for her work on sexual harassment cases. On the advice of Katz, who believed Ford would be attacked as a liar if she came forward, Ford took a polygraph test administered by a former FBI agent in early August. The results, which Katz provided to the post, concluded that Ford was being truthful when she said a statement summarizing her allegations was accurate, end quote. Then the, piece, then the post piece moves to her allegation, quote, After so many years, Ford says she does not remember some key details of the incident. She said she believes it occurred in the summer of 1982, when she was 15 around the end of her sophomore year at the all-girls Holton Arms School in Bethesda. Kavanaugh would have been 17 at the end of his junior year at Georgetown Prep. At the time, Ford said, she knew Kavanaugh and Judge, that's Mark Judge, as, quote, friendly acquaintances in the private school social circles of suburban Maryland. Her Holton Arms friends mostly hung out with the boys from the Landon School, she said, but for a period of several months, socialized regularly with students from Georgetown Prep. Ford says she does not remember how the gathering came together the night of the incident. She said she often spent time in the summer at the Columbia Country Club pool in Chevy Chase, where in those pre-cell phone days, teenagers learned about gatherings via word of mouth. She also doesn't recall who owned the house or how she got there. Ford said she remembers that it was in Montgomery County, not far from the country club, and that no parents were home at the time. Ford named two other teenagers who she said were at the party. Those individuals did not respond to messages on Sunday morning. She said she recalls a small family room where she and a handful of others drank beer together that night. She said that each person had one beer, but that Kavanaugh and Judge had started drinking earlier and were heavily intoxicated. In his senior class yearbook entry at Georgetown Prep, Kavanaugh made several references to drinking, claiming membership to the, quote, Beach Week Ralph Club, and, quote, Keg City Club. He and Judge are pictured together at the beach in a photo in the yearbook. Judge is a filmmaker and author who has written for The Daily Caller, The Weekly Standard, and The Washington Post. He chronicled his recovery from alcoholism in Wasted Tales of a Gen X Drunk, which described his own blackout drinking and a culture of partying among students at his high school, renamed in the book Loyola Prep. Kavanaugh is not mentioned in the book, but a passage about partying at the beach one summer makes glancing reference to a Bart O. Kavanaugh who, quote, puked in someone's car the other night and, quote, passed out on his way back from a party. Through the White House, Kavanaugh did not respond to a question about whether the name was a pseudonym for him. Ford said that on the night of the party, she left the family room to use the bathroom, which was at the top of a narrow stairway. She doesn't remember whether Kavanaugh and Judge were behind her or already upstairs, but she remembers being pushed into a bedroom and then onto a bed. Rock and roll music was playing with the volume turned up high, she said. She alleges that Kavanaugh, who played football and basketball at Georgetown Prep, held her down with the weight of his body, and fumbled with her clothes, seemingly hindered by his intoxication. Judge stood across the room, she said, and both boys were laughing, quote, maniacally, end quote. She said she yelled, hoping that someone downstairs would hear her over the music, and Kavanaugh clapped his hand over her mouth to silence her. At one point, she said, Judge jumped on top of them, and she tried unsuccessfully to wriggle free, Then Judge jumped on them again, toppling them, and she broke away, she said. She said she locked herself in the bathroom and listened until she heard the boys, quote, going down the stairs, hitting the walls, unquote. She said that after five or ten minutes, she unlocked the door and made her way through the living room and outside. She isn't sure how she got home. Ford says she has not spoken with Kavanaugh since that night, and she told no one at the time what had happened to her. She was terrified, she said, that she would be in trouble if her parents realized that she had been at a party where teenagers were drinking, and she worried they might figure it out even if she did not tell them. End quote. You'll find the entire piece in the suggested reading. As of last week the fbi had declined to investigate i don't know if they'll maintain that position now that the accuser has gone public and for those of you wondering what the fbi has to do with what in other circumstances would be a matter for local law enforcement the fbi is tasked with conducting background checks on federal judicial nominees as of sunday afternoon republican senators seemed to be sticking by kavanaugh we'll see how long that lasts And now to the spending front. On Thursday, House and Senate negotiators announced they had come to agreement on a second minibus spending bill. It combines the Appropriations Bill for the Department of Defense with the Appropriations Bill for the Departments of Labor, Health and Human Services, and Education and related agencies. This bill alone contains about 60% of the discretionary spending that Congress gets to vote on every year. Combined with the first minibus that passed both houses and went to the president last week, that's about 75% of the discretionary spending Congress will appropriate, and it's actually getting done in a timely fashion. That's the Pentagon's first on-schedule spending bill since 2008, and that was one of the Trump administration's top legislative priorities this year. That's the good news. You know the bad news already. It spends money out the wazoo. The Defense Department provision of the bill includes $674.4 billion, which is a $20 billion increase over the FY 2018 enacted level. That's $606.5 billion in base funding and $67.9 billion for overseas contingency operations funding. The Departments of Labor, Health and Human Services and Education provision of the bill provides $178.1 billion in discretionary funding. That includes $39 billion for the National Institutes of Health, a $2 billion increase on top of last year's increase. In fact, since Republicans took back the Senate in time for the FY 2016 funding cycle, they've increased spending on the National Institutes of Health by $9 billion per year, about 30% more than what we were spending on NIH before Republicans took control of the appropriations process. But that's not all the bad news. In addition to spending money out of the wazoo and spending it on things conservatives hate, there's a catch. The package under which it will be brought to the floor also contains a continuing resolution to fund the rest of the government until December 7th, about a month after the elections. In other words, House and Senate appropriators, both Republicans and Democrats, are boxing in President Trump. He can sign the bill and swallow a lot of domestic spending that he doesn't like and postpone a fight over funding for his wall until after the election, or he can veto the package and shut down most of the government. The Republican Study Committee in the House issued a statement Thursday that suggested its members would be willing to vote against the spending package, even if that means voting against the defense bill. Stay tuned. Finally, on the tax reform front, As we discussed last week, on Thursday, the House Ways and Means Committee passed on a party-line 21 to 15 vote, the package it's calling Tax Reform 2.0, which, among other things, makes permanent the individual tax cuts included in the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act. You'll recall that because of budget rules, the individual tax cuts in that law were set to expire in 2025, which would have meant a huge tax increase for individuals. This new package solves that problem by removing the provisions that cause the individual tax cuts to expire. The Joint Committee on Taxation, Congress's official tax scorekeeper, estimates that making the individual tax cuts permanent will save American taxpayers $631 billion over 10 years. Of course, that's not the way they explain it. They say it will reduce federal revenue by that amount because in their minds, all that money belongs to the federal government in the first place. And that's our Washington Report for this week.